From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. to do a deeper dive into one of them, the proposed Impact Assessment Act. Why this act? Well, the Impact Assessment Act is how large-scale projects get approved in this country. It also has the mechanism for the public to comment on these projects and voice their opinions. I spoke with Anna Johnston, a staff lawyer from West Coast Environmental Law based in Ottawa. Then, I spoke with Dr. John Sinclair, a professor at the Natural Resource Institute at the University of Manitoba. Listen in to find out what I learned about public participation and the Impact Assessment Act. My name's Anna Johnston. I'm a staff lawyer at West Coast Environmental Law, which is a nonprofit environmental law organization based in British Columbia in Vancouver. And what I work on is federal environmental law reform. So I'm actually based in Ottawa so that I can work closely with the government on its reviews of environmental laws and in particular on its uh, proposed new Impact Assessment Act that it just tabled in February in Bill C-69. So were you involved in the process of creating this new Bill C-69? Uh, I definitely consulted considerably with the government, so I didn't have any hand in holding the pen on it, but I, leading up to the Act, worked with a lot of community groups and environmental organizations, academics, and environmental assessment experts to put together proposals and recommendations for what the new bill should contain. I co-chair the Environmental Planning and Assessment Caucus of the Canadian Environmental Network, which has received a number of contracts from the Canadian Environmental Assessment Agency to help make recommendations on the bill. And I also sit on the multi-interest advisory committee that the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Minister McKenna, appointed to help with the review. Do you feel that the government listened to most of the recommendations that was were proposed from this committee? Well, they definitely listened to some. There are some provisions in the new act that the Multi-Interest Advisory Committee recommended, such as the emphasis on having meaningful public participation opportunities, the elimination of the standing test that you currently see in the current act, the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act 2012, or CIA 2012 as we call it. That act had 
limited who could participate in an environmental assessment, especially a um, pipeline, oil pipeline reviews to people who were quote-unquote directly affected. And the new act does away with that, which was something that the multi-interest advisory committee recommended. We also recommended that there be a greater emphasis on what's called regional and strategic assessments. So instead of just focusing on individual projects, taking a bigger picture view of entire regions or issue areas so that you can come up with a plan for the future for that region without having to have those sort of bigger picture fights at the project level. And there were some, some aspects where the bill didn't go as far as uh, a lot of participants had hoped to, but that's, you know, we're still working on that as the bill goes through the House of Commons and is open to amendments. So I think I'll come back to what you guys had hoped for. And I want to talk a little bit about two things that you mentioned there. The first one being meaningful public participation. Um, so you wrote a little bit in your blog on this that talking about meaningful and deliberative public participation. So what does that what does that mean to you? What does that actually look like? Yeah, so, you know, maybe before describing that, I'll describe how public participation has historically occurred under the Act. So usually when there's an environmental assessment, it either goes through uh, the agency or a review panel. And currently under CIA 2012, the National Energy Board and the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission also are the authorities for assessments that they regulate. And so when an, a, an environmental assessment is administered by the agency, typically the only way to participate in those assessments is by providing them with written comments. And the agency may summarize those comments. Uh, You don't usually see how public participation has really influenced the results. There there isn't usually a cross-referencing to back to what the public has raised to the decision. And then in review panels and what the National Energy Board does is have public hearings on the project. So the public can come up and make comments. If it's a review panel by the National Energy Board, then they tend to limit those hearings to just providing oral testimony without allowing cross-examination. The rules of procedure really get to be written by the reviewing body. So panel reviews that have been appointed, appointed by the agency will have public hearings, but also they often don't like to allow cross-examination because they want to keep the process a little bit more public-friendly. And so really the, the two main opportunities are providing written comments and then providing an oral submission. And in either case, the public doesn't usually get to see you know, how their comments have been considered. They might be mentioned in a report, but they also might not be. So the problems with that approach are twofold. First, neither public comments, written comments, nor oral hearings work for a lot of members of the public. What they want to be able to do is feel like they're in a dialogue about a proposed project. And I'm not just talking about members of the public that oppose projects, because a lot of people like the idea of having a new, you know, mine or, you know, another kind of industrial project in their communities that will afford them with a lot of jobs, but they might be concerned about where it's located or, you know, whether or not the the access to that project is going to be through a road or whether or not the proponent will fly people in. And so they want to sit down with the proponent and with the government decision makers and really feel like they're being heard. And when they ask questions, that those are being answered honestly. 
Um, so what deliberative public participation looks like is starts off with the public sitting down with the proponent and with the decision maker, with the agency, and deciding how they want to be consulted. You know, deciding whether or not oral hearings with cross-examination are necessary. This can be intimidating to a lot of members of the public, and also they tend to be processes that are better suited to having lawyers involved. And so they might also want to have roundtable discussions that are facilitated by a professional who's able to compile comments and then reflect back to the community what they have heard. So it looks like, it looks first of all like the public being engaged in the design of participation processes, and it looks like using much more flexible means of interacting with the public, having a variety of tools to engage the public, and then also showing them how their concerns and remarks are considered in decisions. So for the variety of the tools, would those look like um, like public open houses and you said roundtables? Are there any other um, types of tools that would be used? Uh, yeah, well, you can have informal hearing processes and formal hearing processes. Open houses are okay, but they tend to be a one-way information street from the proponent out to the public. You know, and so being able to sit down and, uh, you know, charrettes are another engagement design tool. Um, you know, and then within workshops, there are, you know, a variety of means of engaging the public. You can also use online tools. The expert panel that reviewed environmental assessment processes used a mix of, um, you know, roundtable discussions where the review panel sat down with various community members and engaged them on a series of questions. They had hearings where the public could come and give comments to them. They had Indigenous engagement sessions. They also had, uh, you know, an online tool where they set out a number of questions and engaged the public in responding to those questions and compiled the answers, and they had written comments. So, you know, I think that there's really no limit to the different means of engaging the public, both in person and online, that you could employ in an assessment. So it sounds like you are a big proponent of public participation. So one of the questions I was going to ask you is if you think public participation is an important goal to strive towards, and it sounds like you would agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. For a couple of reasons. One, you know, because I think the more you engage people, the better the final outcome is. You know, the the public and Indigenous peoples, people who live in local communities, have a deep knowledge of the land, of the environment of their communities, and also what their community values and goals are. You know, so if a proponent comes into town wanting to build, again, say, a mine, and a community isn't opposed to the mine... I think they can be incredibly valuable to the proponent in suggesting where, you know, certain sensitive areas might lie that the mine shouldn't affect. You know, don't turn our sacred lake into a tailings pond, please, would be, you know, a a suggestion that engaging the public really early on and Indigenous peoples really early on could help prevent. So I think you get to better outcomes when you engage the public, but you also get better buy-in of the outcomes when the public feels like they've been meaningfully heard. So by allowing for really deliberative participation processes, you're much less likely to get the kinds of protests and lawsuits that we often see following project approval and much more likely to have greater community harmony and harmony between the proponent and the public. 
So what would you say in response to the idea or comments from people that say that the government only listens to the perspective that they already agree with or they get people involved whose opinion they already know that they like? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's always a risk. Um, Whether or not it's true, I think, is less important than whether or not the public believes that to be true. And it's another reason for making the public feel like they really have been deeply engaged. You know, what I always say is that you're never going to get 100% agreement on a decision, but the goal should always be to get 100% buy-in to that decision. And in order to get that buy-in of the decision, you have to make the public feel like they've really been heard. I wanted to talk about another thing that you mentioned in your blog titled Canada's Proposed New Impact Assessment Act, Good from Afar but Far from Good. One Mm -hmm. of the items you talked about was safeguards in the law. So I was wondering what these safeguards in the law would look like. And you also discussed economic benefits generally have always won um, over community and environmental benefits. And if you had any examples of where that had happened. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, the, you know, the amount of times that a project has not been approved following an environmental assessment in Canada is limited to, to uh, oh, I'd, I'm aware of one. Wow. I think there may be one or two others. Um, cases where a project will result in significant adverse effects, well, there's the, you know, the Kinder Morgan pipeline project that is really getting a lot of media attention these days. Also, the, the Site C Dam project up in northeastern BC, where the expert panel that the federal government appointed, along with the province of BC, to review the assessment said that the project will result in significant adverse environmental impacts that those impacts could only be justified if there were an unambiguous need for the power and that the proponent hadn't proven the need for that power, and the government went ahead and approved it anyway. And so we have a lot of examples of, you know, look at any of, um, you know, tar sands, for example, mines, the, in the Jack Pine Mine Expansion Project, a panel reviewing that said that the project would result in significant adverse environmental effects and especially significant cumulative effects and approved it because of the economic benefits that the project would bring. So I think that the concern with that kind of decision-making is that it may be sustainable for one or two projects, but you have to look at the cumulative impacts of projects. Climate change is the ultimate cumulative effect by approving or not even reviewing smaller projects that make incremental, you know, releases of greenhouse gas emissions into our atmosphere. The world has put us into a climate crisis. So you have to look at the bigger picture. And then you also have to set out some hard bottom lines, as I said in my blog post, such as one of the ones that we had proposed is that you can't approve a project if it will result in significant adverse environmental effects unless the alternative is an even more significant environmental effect. So in a situation like that, if you take my example of a, the dam that would release methylmercury but would also eliminate you know, quite a bit of greenhouse gas emissions because it would result in shutting down a coal-fired generation plant, the more significant adverse effect might be that coal-fired plant, and so you could go ahead and approve the project. But just putting in some of those legal bottom lines, you know, you can't approve a project if it is likely that it will impede 
or um, make it impossible to reach our climate agreement, our Paris Agreement obligations. So, Anna, do you have any closing thoughts on the Impact Assessment Act or on public participation more broadly? Well, you know, maybe just to say that the government is sending this bill to the Environment Committee and they're going to be considering amendments on it. And then there's this whole process of developing supporting regulations and policy guidance. And so, you know, if as members of the public, people are inclined to want to weigh in, this government is very open to hearing from Canadians. They have a website up about this. They're taking public comments on the project list regulations up until April 15th. And so, you know, I would say get engaged. Okay, great. Thank you so much for chatting with me, Anna. This has been really insightful. And thanks for your time. And hope you have a great rest of your day. (laughs) Great. Yeah, thanks very much for hearing from me. So it's more about getting the whole picture. 
yeah, it's the decision of whether a project goes ahead or not remains a political decision. And politicians in Manitoba here, for example, the politician that happened to be the environment minister in the riding where Maple Leaf wanted to build their big hog slaughter facility, and he and Mr. Philman pushed that through, uh, he lost his seat in the next election. So, you know, that's how the democratic process works. You know, it, we, we need to be able to hold people to account, too, through having as full of information, as the most fulsome information possible, everybody on, on which decisions are made, so that we understand with the greatest transparency possible how those decisions were made. And that's one of our goals. So I read one of your articles on reconceptualizing public participation in environmental assessment as EA civics. In that article, you talk about the civics focus of public participation. Yeah. Do you think that the proposed Impact Assessment Act is following the nature of that kind of civics focus? Or could you also talk a little bit more about the civics focus? Yeah, so the simple answer is no. So Bill defines meaningful public participation participation, just the way CIA 2012 defined meaningful public participation. But I think if you talk to most people who uh, participated in the case under CIA 2012, they would have not said that the participation, or they would have indicated that the participation was not meaningful. Part of what I'm pulling together right now tries to introduce some wording that will hopefully make participation more meaningful. The first thing is actually defining meaningful public participation in the Act. We know that they're not going to make very many changes to the Act. That's just the nature of the game. But in in the case of participation, I will and others will be pushing very hard for a new regulation to be struck under, under Section 112 of the Act. And that regulation is going to have to start to establish in more detail some of the fundamentals of meaningful public participation and require that that decision makers actually implement those things. The way the act, you know, is is written right now or the way the bill is proposed right now, you know, meaningful public participation could mean just having an opportunity to write into uh, the minister about a particular case. So that's that's that 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 option needs to be there, but it's certainly uh, not meaningful in the context of the civics paper that you've just read in terms of trying to get people more engaged. One one area of the civics paper that you know where we talk about about building capacity, you know that's that's something that isn't in the law at all, and certainly needs to be a policy direction of the agency once the new bill is brought in into play is providing capacity for people to understand how the new bill works, the best ways to participate, how they can participate, providing funding to participate, all those all those sorts of things that we talk about. So some of the some of the key things need to be in the law, like the requirement for meaningful participation and meaningful being defined, the requirement to share information the requirement to create a public registry to share information, those sorts of things need to be in law to provide the basic foundation. But, you you know, the, the you can't 
regulate what every what participation needs to look like in every case. It's case specific. So one of the interesting new aspects of the assessment process that's proposed in the bill, the impact assessment process, is that there would be an early planning phase, and it would be during that early planning phase that one would actually work to develop a public participation plan, something that actually uh, we've been pushing for, I've been pushing for in a lot of things that I've written that's, that's never been implemented. So, you know, that that is going to be a requirement in the new bill. How it's going to be done is not clear, but again, that's something that's hard to legislate, but there will need to be, as, as it's called in Ottawa, a policy product created that will um, provide direction in that regard. And are you hopeful that we can maybe someday have a better sort of deliberative democracy in Canada? when it comes to environmental issues or even beyond environmental issues? Yeah, that's a challenging question, um, mainly because of people's different conceptions of deliberation. I definitely think that there's the appetite now and sophistication for much more robust discussions and discussions and dialogue, so deliberation around projects or around strategic assessment, around any of those things. I think people, as we saw with with uh, Idle No More, and as we saw with Northern Gateway, and as we saw with Energy East, people are tired of manufactured processes for participation that are not genuine and ignore what they have to say. So I think that the outcomes of, of you know, those those sorts of big examples certainly promote uh, a movement to, towards more discussions and deliberations to get to an endpoint. And I think that many uh, proponents recognize all, that already. I mean, certainly uh, many, many work hard in communities long before they ever try to bring a project forward, um, and not just co-opting the communities either. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think we have come a long way. I, I, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. It should be a lot better in your generation by the time you're my age. <laughs> so do you have any last final thoughts that you would like to share on the Impact Assessment Act or public participation more broadly? Yes, you have an opportunity to participate in the Standing Committee's review of the Act, the Standing Committee for uh, environment sustainability will be reviewing the act starting right away. I think the they've, the standing committee has already indicated that they will uh, be accepting submissions up to ten pages long. So you should take what you've learned, and all the listeners should write to the standing committee and tell them uh, what they want the new law to look like or what's important about the new law to them. And so we can find this submission link online on the Government of Canada's website? Yeah, just go to Government of Canada webpage, that's right. Great. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me, and thank you for sharing your thoughts and opinions with us. All right. Okay, bye. Bye. That was me, Caitlin McNabb, interviewing Anna Johnston and Dr. John Sinclair. If you want to hear more stories like that, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. And while you're there, look for the survey tab in the menu. We would love to get to know you, our listeners, and hear what you enjoy about the show. 
that's all the time we have for this week's episode. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Charlotte Thomason and Shelley Jodwin. I've been your host, Caitlin McNabb. Catch you next week.